Hallelujah. Father, with this song, we are reminded that every Lord's Day is a resurrection celebration. We have reasons to gather. We are here, the blood-bought redeemed, because Jesus Christ is overcome. The Lamb of God, who once was slain, defeated the grave in His resurrection on the third day. The Lamb, who made Himself of no account, despised and lowly, stooping low, taking on flesh, taking on more, the burden of our sin, requiring of Him, excruciating, cruel, denigrating death by execution on the cross of Calvary has risen from the grave, defeated death, defeated sin, declared himself victor over all who will share in his eternal life and resurrection through salvation in him alone. It is this name that we praise, this name that we adore, this name that we cling to, this name which is the foundation for our hope and understanding of all things from beginning to end. And of that city whose designer and builder is God, we thank you that we share citizenship along with the forebears who've gone before, the witnesses to resurrection from ages past, even Abraham all the way through to this year, 2021. This many years after you have defeated grave in this glorious act in history, we celebrate communion with you because you have overcome all of our enemies, even the greatest and last one, death itself, the wages of sin. For this, we are so thankful. Now, as we turn to your holy word, we pray that the promised Holy Spirit, who you said would remain with us, in fact, so much of a benefit is this reality. You said it was good for you to go away. We ask for this Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, to accompany the proclamation of the Word, to open up our hearts to its truths, and to equip us through its pages, to grow in our understanding, appreciation, and our testimony to the greatness of our God and His power to save the lost, the redeemed, those dead in their trespasses and sins all to the praise of Jesus Christ and the championship of His kingdom and His glory and the advancing of His plans through history as many years as He tarries. And it's in His name, the name of Jesus Christ, the matchless name, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious opportunity. What a gracious gift we received from the Lord today. His grace gathering His people, the small representation such as we are, even in this place, what an incredible blood-bought gift it truly is. Would you turn with me in your scriptures to Psalm 114 today? And let us continue in our Psalm a Month series, considering these eight verses, which I've titled, Moving Heaven and Earth. Today's message is entitled, Moving Heaven and Earth. Evidence of the Lord's power and glory is seen through the Exodus events, things that we've covered by you know, many different references through the Psalms and in the history of the narrative sections of Genesis, Exodus, and so forth. These are themes to praise the Lord that we see in Psalm 114. The aim of this morning's message is to behold the voices testifying to the glory of God from this song. Now, you recall a recent theme in our preaching has been to look for the witnesses in Scripture to the glories of God, including the example of Abraham in a recent study. Well, did you know that creation itself witnesses and testifies to the Lord? And not just in the beauty of the environment and the ecosystem that God has planned, ordered, and sustained, but also in spectacular, supernatural moments where creation itself obeyed the voice of the Lord to demonstrate His glory, and they acted as His servant in revealing aspects of His power, even to His people then and through His Word to His people now. So let us, as we open Psalm 114, listen to these voices by the Spirit's help today, to behold the voices testifying to the glory of God, moving heaven and earth from Psalm 114. 
As you're able, out of reference, would you stand once again for the reading of God's Scripture today? Listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your ears this morning. We have Psalm 114, verses 1 through 8. Here is the infallible and errant Word of God. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Our last psalm, Psalm 113, I introduced that song with this uh, note that it's the first of six psalms which make up another set, historically called the Hallel, Hallel or Praise Psalms, sometimes the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Psalms 114 is the second in this installment, and you can see, indeed, in times of feast and celebration, commemoration of the works of God, especially in the Exodus, It is a great song to remember and to proclaim what God has done in the deliverance of His people. So these, again, become the featured songs commemorating the deliverance of the Lord through the ages at feast and festival. Historians, furthermore, often place the authorship of this psalm in the post-Babylon exile era, perhaps. And the reason they surmise this may be the case is because Israel is referred to, the whole body of the people of God, by the term Judah. And of course, this would apply more directly historically after Judah was the remaining expression, the remnant, the people of God, after the northern tribes had been exiled and Judah was redeemed again out of exile and then a people would return. Now, considering this historical background, one can certainly imagine a worthy occasion for the use of Psalm 114, if not its authorship, as the remnant, the remaining people of God in faith, returned to rebuild the holy city after 70 years of banishment in Babylon. Psalm 114, furthermore, just a poetic note as to the literature, is poetically rich. Its use of parallels indeed becomes a classic example. This recurring feature in biblical or Hebrew poetry, things repeated in a slightly different way, is throughout the psalm. Such that virtually every noun, so every reference to a person, place, or thing, has a pairing virtually in the psalm. Here are some examples. Egypt is paralleled by people of a strange language. Israel is paralleled by the term Jacob. Sanctuary, dominion. Judah, Israel. Sea, Jordan. Mountains, hills. Rams, lambs, flint, rock, a pool, spring, etc. Very beautiful piece of poetry indeed. Now, the implications of this text are also manifold, especially within the pages of Scripture, As we look to the greater context, especially of the Exodus and some fulfillment in the New, we see that the greater body of the canon, is the Word of God, recorded and and preserved, expound Psalm 114, confirm this song, and fulfill its themes throughout. And there's also applications that can be mined from this theologically mineral-rich text as well. So let's consider one by way of introduction. Here's a... uh, an application that occurs to me as I was studying. When one considers the track record of obedience 
weighing two servants of God, if you will. One creation, which is personified in the text, and the other, the people of God, who has the better track record. When one considers the track record of, of obedience, nations versus nature, or creation versus people, which servants are more faithful through the ages? Well, we hasten to answer with the clear testimony of the weakness of our own souls and also the record of Scripture. Shamefully, creation always is obedient to the Lord. But by virtue and a testimony and illustration of our own fallenness and sin, those who have the greatest responsibility and greatest ability to commune with our Maker, indeed, you and I, human beings, made in the image of God, sadly, our track record of obedience falls often far short of nature. Nevertheless, as we see this clearly in our text, this and other points, it only adds to that body of revelation in Scripture, proving God's grace towards us. God has been so gracious with us, we are more disobedient than the Red Sea. We are more disobedient than the mountains that shake at His command. More disobedient than the original creation that sprung into being by the word of our Lord's power. And though we are more disobedient, He is gracious with us, and He is working on us. He has redeemed us, and through sanctification, we are growing in obedience by His grace. So this body of revelation, proving God's grace towards us, is evident in Psalm 114. And that same grace, I pray, would convict us as we listen to the word of our Creator, Redeemer, and Lord. I pray we listen attentively, and as attentively as the seas and mountains listen to His commands as the Jordan River listened to his commands and the other examples in this song. And my prayer is that by these means God would sanctify us as we behold his word. His word that has the power indeed, our title, to move heaven and earth. Here's an introductory heading. We'll follow it with three points this morning. Creation addressed in Psalm 114 is the heading. Creation addressed, spoken to by the Lord in Psalm 114. Number one, we have may I submit, verses 1 through 4, creation called as witness. And this includes two elements, people and places. So us as created beings, people, and specifically the children of Israel, are called as witness to the glory of God. And furthermore, creation itself, seas and mountains, for instance, in the first four verses, are called as witness. Number two, creation question. There's a question, what ails you? That comes forth in the text in verses 5 and 6. Creation is asked a question. This brings up another poetic device, personification. Sometimes, especially in poetry, creation is treated kind of like a person, as if it could answer a question. And then if we imagined its response, I wonder what it would be. We'll cover that. And then final point, number three, creation commanded. In verses 7 and 8, we have this command. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. Creation is questioned. Creation is commanded. Creation is summoned as a witness. And those, this brings up three questions that also correspond to these three main points. Number one, who can testify to the presence of the God of Jacob? Number two, what ails you, O creation? Or how would the earth answer that question? And then number three, when did the earth obey? When Psalm 114 commanded the word of God through this song, tremble, O earth. Okay, So let's, uh, let's consider that first question this morning. Under creation called as witness... Who can testify to the presence of the God of Jacob? Now, verse 2 doesn't give us right away who is referred to, but in the context, I think it's clear. 
It says in verse 2, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Whose sanctuary and whose dominion? Well, that would be the God of Jacob. It becomes more clear in verse 7. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. So the earth has experienced the presence of the Lord in some sense, and so has Judah and Israel. They indeed have been a sanctuary and dominion of the God of Jacob. So who is speaking, or who can testify to the presence, or who is speaking in this sense, um, Israel became his sanctuary, the psalmist, and who is referred to as the sanctuary and dominion, or who owns those things, the God of Jacob would be the answer. And then the creation element that is called as witness would be the people, namely the house of Jacob. Who can testify to the presence of the God of Jacob? The first answer is his people, or the house of Jacob. Verse 1, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language. The house of Jacob, that is the people of God, that are called out, set apart, elect, given promises, and a lineage unto the coming of the future Messiah, this group, these called out ones, this elect people of God, are given, are, they can be summoned, or they have received a testimony of the God of Jacob. And so the psalmist calls on them, so to speak, as a witness. So who can speak to the presence of God among them? Well, Israel can. When can they speak to these things? Or when did they experience such, such things? Well, when they went out from Egypt, from the house of Jacob, of the, uh, the house of Jacob, from a people of a strange language. So they, when they went out from Egypt, from a people of a strange language, they testified to the presence of their God, namely the God of Jacob. Notice in this text one of these pairings I mentioned earlier. Uh, Egypt is paired with a people of a strange language. A people of a strange language. This kind of sets the stage for the glory of the Lord that will be manifest at the Exodus. This idea of dwelling in a foreign land where you are at odds and have differences and confusion and conflict, animosity and so forth um, in your current state of residence gives us this sense of Jacob, the house of Jacob, being far from home. Yes, they are the house of Jacob, but they are not at home so long as they dwell among people of a strange language, so to speak. This strange language, Egyptian, you know, and the people, uh, they have a theological commitment to their language because it goes hand in hand with the word and voice of God and the record of the law of God that would be revealed to them and so forth. Nevertheless, this language barrier between them and their present exile serves as an ever-present reminder of estrangement, of slavery, of being away from home, of being exiled, distant from the promises of God and from the habitation that he would provide them according to the covenant. The providence of God at this time had, had them in a temporary residence different from, the, different, uh, different from where they were called. As such, the providence of God, however, nevertheless preserved them. Do you remember in Egypt, they were given the land of Goshen, which separated them, even in Egypt, uh, to some degree by geography from the rest of the region. Thus, by that means, they were able to maintain some of their distinction. That is to say, the Hebrews in God's providence never fully integrated. They never assimilated into the culture of the Egyptians. Why? Well, God had purpose in maintaining them as a distinct people, as the house of Jacob, so that they would be called out from that place 
to show forth aspects of his calling and character. So culturally, they remained a slave class, but this also allowed them to maintain a distinction. As slaves, an, uh, an abused and uh, sorely treated underclass, they remained distinct as a society, distinct as a language, distinct in their marriages and their cultural norms. Because basically, they were not welcomed into Egypt with open arms or assimilated into the culture, the house of Jacob remained a peculiar or a particular people. Thus, by these means, even in God's providence, he preserved the house of Jacob. But this was a long time, 400 plus years, as the record notes. Nevertheless, there will come a day when that promise to Abraham to be a light to the nations would come to pass in a fully and a more fully manifest sense. These nation groups, you know, Egypt versus Israel versus others, are a reminder of Babel. Do you remember in Genesis 12? Israel, namely Abraham's nation, as an elect people, are different from the pagan dispersion. And as such, they are called to be the house of Jacob and to have the privilege of the residence of a holy God. This was a calling of consecration, means to make holy or set apart, of distinction, being different on purpose, to show forth God's purposes, unto blessing, the future that God had planned for them, even being a blessing to other nations, and the coming message of the Messiah for all peoples one day. And all of this was reiterated, confirmed, and codified. That means even put into a system of social order and law through the Exodus events and the institution of the Mosaic order, that which would shortly follow upon the closing of the chapter of Israel's exile in Egypt. Thus, the people of God, because of these conditions in God's sovereignty, can be called as a witness to testify to the presence of the God of Jacob. This would take faith, would it not? It's really hard to see sometimes when God is preserving for his future purposes, uh, the, and he's doing so through the means or the preservative of affliction. There are some ways in which God preserves his people for his purposes that involve trial and affliction. But with the faith of Abraham, like we see in his example, though he didn't take up permanent residence in the promised land, nevertheless, there was a future promise and orientation more glorious still that he would experience post-resurrection. We can draw inspiration from the house of Jacob in slavery for so many centuries, from Abraham wandering toward a place he wouldn't see till after death, ultimately speaking, we can take inspiration that even in our own difficulties, trials, and afflictions, nevertheless, God preserves a remnant. Spiritually speaking, we are the heirs of Abraham. We are the house of Jacob. Now, furthermore, as a witness, those who can testify to the presence of the Lord, there's a way that they could witness that's even more particular still. And this comes more clearly to us in verse 2. In what way, you could ask it this way, the question, in what way did Judah and Israel, that is the nation, the elect, the people of God at this time, in what way did they testify to the presence of the God of Jacob? Two ways, sanctuary and dominion. Judah testifies to the presence of the God of Jacob inasmuch as this nation was his sanctuary. Furthermore, his dominion. So there's another pairing, sanctuary and dominion. Slightly different implications of these words, but both are glorious. In what way can God's people testify to his presence? Well, they are his house. But furthermore, as his house, they actually welcome him in their midst. The indwelling spirit of God actually 
indwells saints of God right now. In other words, we can relate to this in a spiritual way. Think about it. Where did the glory presence of God show up? Well, when the presence of God showed up in Egypt, it resulted in plagues and the slaughter of the firstborn. But when the presence of God showed up in the house of Jacob, it resulted in a cloud that shielded them from their enemies, drowned their enemies, and led them unto the promised land, and indeed a fire by night. The presence of God in the house of Jacob testified to his glorious residence in favor and redemption and in salvation for his people. What an incredible testimony. This is what was happening. And why was this the case? It was because God himself, Yahweh, the Lord of glory, chose lowly, few in number, despised and rejected Judah, Israel, and this nation at this time to be his holy sanctuary. Now, saints, members of the household of God, you are also lowly, few in number, not worthy of the presence of God. Nevertheless, in the condescension of the gospel, Jesus said it is good for him to leave because he would send his Holy Spirit. And upon further revelation in Scripture, we are described indeed as the temple or the sanctuary of God himself. What does it mean to be the temple of the Holy Ghost? It means that you and I, just like the house of Jacob did at one time in the past, can testify to the presence of our Lord and Savior because He dwells in His Holy Spirit, via His Holy Spirit, indeed, in us. This is incredible. And we know the evidences of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, do we not? You're sitting listening, I trust, with attention to the Word of God today. You wouldn't be listening. You would be offended and stopping your ears and rejecting this message in your rebellious hatred of God Almighty if the Holy Spirit did not indwell you. If the Holy Spirit did not indwell you, then you would have no desire to understand, to comprehend, and to study, to repent, to turn from your sin, to open up the Scripture, and therein find the words of spiritual life that you know your soul hinges upon their every word. And of course, there's many more examples. Suffice it to say that Israel of old and new Israel, if you, so to speak, today can testify to the presence of the Lord inasmuch as we are a sanctuary for His presence. More than this, His dominion. Dominion speaks to kingdom, residence, and an order of society. Not only was Judah called to be a place of holy fellowship, communion, cloud presence, redemption, worship, abiding, guiding, preserving, protecting, and providing light and power, but also Judah was called to be the dominion, that is the kingdom, and the order, the keepers, the archivists, if you will, the librarians, if you will, of the law and word of God. The word and law of God delivered directly by the very finger of the Almighty on the stone tablets of his called out servant, Moses, indeed, was proof positive by the sovereign writing of the God who is over the heavens and the earth that they were his dominion. And brothers and sisters, you as well have the word of God preserved by no less supernatural means, though different, in your hands today. And it is, it is this word of God that we are reading. We, have now, we are now entrusted as his saints and as his people, inhabit, uh, citizens of the kingdom of God, we are entrusted with his word to hide it in our hearts, 
to rightly understand it as the Spirit gives us ability and to proclaim its truth to a culture lost and dead and their transgressions and sins, to be a fulfillment of the calling of Abraham to yet today through the gospel dispersion, if you will, the Great Commission, to be a light to the pagan nations. And when we do so, we evidence the presence of the God of Jacob knowing that we are a new creation, but also we are a new nation. We have a new king, Jesus Christ. We have a new order, law, and authority, his holy word. We have a new identity as his people and priests and citizens of a higher realm, a higher kingdom. Indeed, the new heavens and the new earth ultimately manifest one day. Well, this was something in principle that we share with the house of Jacob of old. They too were chosen as God's dominion and his sanctuary. Exodus 19, 3 through 6. It's just an amazing cross-reference. Listen to this. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, notice that same phrasing, and tell the people of Israel, again a reference from our text, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Key phrase, right? Dominion sanctuary, treasured possession. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. There you go. Dominion sanctuary. And a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Can you not see in this beautiful, again, poetic language, coming from the voice of Yahweh himself, that it is his love that drew them out and made them his sanctuary, even bearing them, as it were, high above the affliction and the tyranny of Egypt, on eagles' wings, so to speak. And furthermore, that he made them his treasured possession, dominion, and a people, kings and priests, to the praise of his great name. Thus, as creation is called as witness, don't forget the people of God created in his image. They can testify, the house of Jacob, to the presence of the God of Jacob inasmuch as they are his sanctuary and his dominion. But now we turn to the major portion of, the, of Psalm 114 and we see that natural creation is summoned as a witness as well. Verse 3, the sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. <clears throat> Not only people, but places can testify to the presence of the God of Jacob. Which raises another question. How did the sea testify to the presence of the God of Jacob? Well, think of the Red Sea. How did the Jordan River separating the people, that last barrier, from entering into the promised land? How did it testify to the presence of the God of Jacob? Well, the rest of the psalm poetically answers that question. Nature can testify to the presence of the Lord. And here's just a study idea and a question for you kids. You know, one thing you could do is you could go back through the Exodus accounts and Scripture and you could highlight and make a list of every time the natural order, creation, like say a mountain, a sea, or a storm, or the sun, any time the created order testified to the presence of God. And if you made that list, it would indeed be staggering. Sometimes it's a really fruitful study to do something like that, and it increases your appreciation of the glory of God through these varied means. So kids, I have a question for you. Can you name a time where something in creation uh, testified to God's glory? So what was something amazing that happened with like a mountain or like a storm or a sea or the sun during this time? Does anybody know? God 
Oh, that's awesome. Well, so uh, Theo's getting way uh, out ahead of my sermon, but he's anticipating a later point. When Jesus was in the boat asleep and he spoke and the storm was silenced, yes, that is an example. It's not during this Exodus time, but it's during the time of Jesus' gospel ministry, but that indeed is the principle at play. Is there another time, kids, in the Bible when creation did something amazing when God told it to? Anyone think? Anyone heard of Joshua's long day? Remember that? Yeah, what was that, Ren? Who for three days? Oh, the sun stayed up for three days. Not quite three, but close. So Ren is remembering the time when God actually stood the sun still in the sky, evidencing his presence in order for Israel to defeat his enemies. Evan, did you have one? Very good. And when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, Evan reminds us, and that's indeed nail on the head right here, what happened to the mountain? Do you remember Gideon? Stayed up there 40 days and 40 nights, and that is correct. And there were amazing things that happened to the mountain and to nature at the time. More on that in a minute. So thank you, kids, for reminding us of a few examples. We're seeing mountains, as it were. That is, nature itself testifies to the presence of the Lord. This brings up point, major point number two. Creation is questioned in verse 5 and 6. Notice again in Psalm 114, our primary text today. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. So what's the major question there? What ails you? Perhaps phrased another way, we could ask the question like this. What is the cause of your disturbance? What ails you, O sea? What is the cause of your disturbance, O sea? Or in the example of Joshua's long day. What is the cause of the disturbance of the normal order of the sun rising and setting, O sun? You see, creation is questioned. Nature can also testify to the presence of God. And it, uh, it makes us wonder how the earth would answer. So the earth, nature, is personified. So the psalmist is asking the sea a question. Hey, what ails you? What is the cause of your disturbance? He's asking the mountain. What ails you? What caused you to be disturbed from the natural order of things? And so forth. So let's uh, join him in this picture and ask ourselves, how would the earth answer? Well, in context, I believe the first answer comes in Exodus 14. Would you turn there with me? Exodus 14. Again, the question, what ails you? Or what is the cause for your disturbance? The Red Sea answers in Exodus 14, and we pick up on the account through the obedience of Moses and the power of God evident at the crossing and the events that preceded it. Verse 15, Exodus 14. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your... Kids, what's Moses supposed to lift up in his hand? Kids? His staff, that's correct. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over what? Kids? The water, the sea, and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Very good. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, that they will, uh, shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. And it continues like this. So, uh, verse, uh, so we can pause there. So the question again, what ails you, O Red Sea? What is the cause of your disturbance, O Red Sea? 
and the Red Sea might answer, the staff in the hand of the prophet of God. So in your imagination, can you hear the sea shouting? The staff in the prophet's hand. That is what ails me. So you remember what happened to the Red Sea. The wind blew all night. The wind, which is associated with the Spirit of God, the sovereign activity of the presence of the God, the house of Jacob, it blew the sea all night long into two heaps until in the, in the next morning, a mountain of water stood on one side and a mountain on the other. Now, I list, I, there was one commentator I was reading this week, and listen to how cool this is. Uh, at Sinai, the mountain shook. And at uh, the Red Sea, it basically became like two mountains. So the power of God took something that was normally liquid and made it static. And then the power of God took something that was normally static and made it liquid when he called water out of a rock. Isn't that incredible? Now, how many times have you seen water spring out of a rock? You know, but I'm talking water springing from granite mineral. Never. Why? Because it's physically impossible. Well, not impossible with God who made the rock in the first place. God can take liquid and make it a solid, as it were, make it a static environment by the word of his power and, and overriding the natural order of things just as he can call liquid out of something static, making a rock spew forth and springs for his people to drink from. Just a cool way to, to think of it. So the earth answers, as it were, or the Red Sea answers, the rod in the hand of the prophet of God. That is what ails me. That is the cause for my disturbance. Why do I stand in two heaps? The Red Sea answers, because of the staff in the hand of the prophet of God. Now this staff indicates delegated authority office, agency. There would come a prophet after the order of Moses who would also have a staff or a rod in his hand. And one day the nations will be asked, what ails you, O unrepentant America? What ails you, O mystery Babylon? What ails you, O culture dead in your trespasses and sins? And they will respond, the rod in the hand of the prophet of prophets. It is that iron rod, Psalm 2, that rod, Revelation 6, which dashes the pottery in pieces. And this is a picture, if God can cause the sea to stand at attention, when the symbol of his authority through his anointed servant is stretched over this body of water, so the rod in the hand of our Messiah stretched over a wicked culture is a fearful thing indeed. What ails you, O unrepentant nation, caught in some degree as I judge it right now under the shattering judgments of Almighty God? And if they were honest... If they were aware, our culture, any unrepentant nation, lost in their transgressions and sins would say, the rod, the staff, in the hand of the prophet, the prophet of prophets, that is what ails me. You see, creation testifies to something that we should affirm. We must bow in submission and humility before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Otherwise, his rod of judgment will be extended over to us, over us uh, speaking generally, as a people, and there will be distinct consequences. How do we know God will do it? Creation is summoned as a witness, all the way back to the Exodus. And in Psalm 114, you know it will happen because the God of the house of Jacob has the authority and power and ability to turn a liquid into a solid and a solid into a liquid by the word of his almighty power. How would the earth answer? What ails you, O Jordan River? For the answer to this, turn with me to Joshua chapter 3. What ails you, O Jordan River? And again, at this time, we're 40 years down the road. The people of God have assembled at the threshold of the promised land. 
There's yet one more barrier to cross, and this will prove once again a testimony in nature of God's sovereign power. So Joshua chapter 3, we find the house of Jacob assembled before this rushing stream. In verse 14, we pick up on the account. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon, listen, as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, parentheses here, now the Jordan overflows, all its banks throughout the time of harvest, so we're talking a trickle here, we're talking a river at flood stage, verse 16. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. The city that is beside Zarethan and those flowing down toward the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now, how did this miracle happen? What ails you, O Jordan? Well, we, ultimately speaking, we can say the word of God. The word of God at creation. What, did, what happened in the creation week? The word of God was spoken and God separated the land from the waters. The water and the land was separated. Should it be any surprise that God could do that in the course of history? At the Red Sea, the word of God was spoken through his servant and the land separated from the waters and a way was made through that great sea. At the Jordan River, the word of the Lord came through his servant Joshua and the obedience of the priests and as soon as their feet stepped into that flowing rushing, mighty river at flood stage, immediately the waters were separated from the land, just like at creation. And a pathway was made for the people of God to pass with dry sandals and freely into the promised land. So again, the question, what ails you? What's the cause of your disturbance? Why did you have this sovereign dam of your waters way to the north? Oh, Jordan River. And what does Jordan River answer? The feet of the priests. The feet of the priests, as soon as they touched the waters of the Jordan, disturbed this natural order of things such that it created a dam that this river at flood stage uh, behind the hand of Yahweh so that his people would walk freely into the promised land. And by the way, this is the same answer the Sea of Galilee, if so to speak, would give in the future. Do you remember? Kids, somebody was walking, so the disciples are in the boat, another storm, a lot like the one Theo reminded us of. The disciples are in the boat, they're freaking out, they think they're going to drown, and then they see something in the, in the distance. What is it? Jesus. And what's he doing? Jesus is? Not sleeping this time. He's, he's walking toward them. You guys remember this? What do they see in the distance? Jesus walking on the water. Walking on the water. So think of the Sea of Galilee, poetically personified. What ails you, O Sea of Galilee? Why the cause for this storm? The same answer. The feet of the priest. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He not only stepped into the water of Galilee, he stepped onto the water of Galilee, showing that in his priesthood, he was superior to any that went of old, sovereign over the seas. And do you remember the moment that that sea was stilled? It was the moment when his feet left the water and he stepped into the boat. What ails you, O Galilee? When the feet of the priest of priests stepped upon my waters, I could not but be thrown into a tumult. And why? The cause for the storm? To demonstrate the glory of the Messiah over the rushing chaotic sea to the disciples 
and to us and to Peter who is actually welcomed on to those very same waves. You see, Psalm 114 is fulfilled, confirmed, and it is gloriously illustrated in the gospel. As creation is questioned, how might the earth answer? What's the cause for your disturbance? What ails you, O Jordan, O Sea of Galilee? The feet of the priests, they might answer. And then point number three under creation question, we have a mountain in view. So we go back to Psalm 114. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? And then a third reference, verse 6. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. For this one, would you turn again to Exodus 19? Exodus 19. What ails Mount Sinai? What's the cause for the disturbance? In Exodus 19, we pick up on the account in verses 16 and following. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. And uh, which one of you pointed out that Sinai? I think it was Evan back there. This is that moment that we referenced before. On the morning of the third day, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Kids, what's the name of this mountain? Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the uh, smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Kids, what does that sound like? The whole mountain trembled greatly. What does that sound like to you? Shout it out. What would cause the mountain to tremble, do you think? Earthquake. I'll take that answer. So something like an earthquake, the trembling of the mountain, this disturbance, again, what we were saying before, something that is normally static and fixed, a mountain is being shaken. What's the cause for your disturbance, O Sinai? What ails you, O Sinai, that you shake in the presence of the Lord? And what would be the answer? The voice of the Lord God Almighty. Mount Sinai poetically answers, what ails me? What's the cause for this disturbance? Disturbance, the trumpeting voice, the word of God. That's what ails me. That is the cause for this disturbance. By the way, the same answer would be given to the mountains and rocks if they were given permission according to the request of the victims of the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation 15 and 16. And this passage, the kings, the generals, the rich, the powerful, all the way down to the weak and lowly. It is pictured that they hide in the caves of the hills, unrepentant, and they cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. At this time, the people, not having received the assurance of their sins pardoned by God's plan of salvation, trembled in fear. They'd rather die than approach God's presence. And this is true all through redemptive history, even up to the bitter end pictured by this language in Revelation. And when the mountains tremble, and when they shake, and when there's a disturbance by God's judgment and revelation of His power, when the wrath of the Lamb is revealed, and the mountains say, yes, Lord, if, if God would allow, and, and fall as by way of judgment upon those who are unrepentant, you know it is the power of God evident, and it is creation saying, yes, Lord, to His command. And again, with fire, these flaming stones or whatever it was that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, what ails your skies, O Sodom and Gomorrah? What's the cause for the disturbance in the atmosphere over the cities of the plains? It is the voice of the Lord proclaimed through His servants, proclaiming judgment after investigating the wickedness of the city, that now what was once static 
normal, ordinary, dependable, predictable, namely this fertile valley with its rich soil, luscious yield, and the rain that falls, the crops that grow, will immediately be interrupted by the power of God. What ails me? The word of God in judgment. And now for seven, eight hundred years, let's say, even as archaeology testifies, that region will be salted. Mount Sinai answers, the word of God ails me. Think of the hills, if so to speak, under the feet of the rebels of Korah, later in the text, Numbers 16, 28 through 35. Kids, you remember what happened to the followers of Korah? They were not repentant. They did not uh, believe God's servant Moses had authority and legitimately, legitimacy lead them. So God brought judgment. You guys remember how the followers of Korah died? You guys remember? Something happened. The earth was disturbed. Remember? It opened up. What happened? Everyone fell in, swallowed them up. Then it closed, and then fire came out and killed 350 more, I believe, 250 maybe. So in that instance, the earth was disturbed. What is the cause for the hills under the feet of the rebels of Korah? What ails you, O hills? And the answer would be, the word of the Lord in judgment is what ails me, what has disturbed my foundations. And now I serve as a witness and testimony to the power and presence of the mighty God of Jacob. We have a bit on judgment, a lot on judgment, that is an applicable, you know, reference, cross-reference to these texts. But let us close with another trembling, another shaking, and a note of hope as we bring up point three. Creation address in Psalm 114. First, creation called as witness, people in place. Second, creation is questioned, what ails you? And we can imagine the answer coming by way of these references in Scripture. And third and finally, we have in Psalm 114 today, creation commanded, verses 7 and 8. Listen to the command. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water and the flint into a spring of water. What's the command? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. When was that command obeyed? When did the earth obey the command to tremble before his presence? Well, certainly all these examples I gave you would be a past example to the author at the time, but there was yet a future example. We'll close on that note in a moment. That note in a moment. First of all, though, consider precedent. Wilderness provision. In this last verse, who, that is the God of Jacob, turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. God is able to make wilderness provision, or provision in the wilderness, to turn a wasteland into a rock, into a source of life. At the waters spilling forth from the rock of Horeb, struck by Moses' staff, which he named Massa and Meribah in Exodus 17, 4-7. And then again, we have a similar incident, Numbers 20, 9-13. We have precedent for the God of Jacob interacting in a way to preserve his people. We have the earth obeying. Call forth from the rock. And so that rock was struck. Was it not in the first instance? And then the command in the second was to speak. Moses struck again. 1 Corinthians 10, the beginning of the chapter, tells us that spiritually speaking, that rock was Christ. That is to say, the striking of the rock had spiritual significance in the future. In other words, another rock would be struck, and in that striking, wilderness provision would flow. When the rock of Jesus Christ, so to speak, was struck by the spear, and blood and water flowed from the side of our Messiah. Those elements of his giving, self-giving, and death represented spiritual life. The rock was struck on Calvary. 
This is why I believe it was sin to strike it again. Because the rock of Jesus Christ is to be struck but once. And upon that striking, there is sovereign provision in the wilderness of our sin. This is what the God of Jacob did of old in picture form. And this is what the God of Jacob did in fulfillment in gospel form in the New Testament. Now something happened at the moment when Jesus Christ, our rock in the wilderness of our sin, was struck. And for these last two references, turn with me to Matthew 27. And since this is the resurrection season, so to speak, you're probably guessing where I'm going. Yes, we're going to talk about two more earthquakes very briefly as we close. Remember again, creation is commanded in Psalm 114, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Remember, just briefly, I can't help but insert all these kind of parenthetical statements. At John chapter 4, the woman at the well, again, water's flowing, living water in a wilderness. The well physically gives way to the well of living water spiritually and the message from the Messiah himself. And so at that moment, these living waters are flowing, so to speak, available in Jesus Christ, right? And at that time, she asks the question, are you greater than our father Jacob? And what's the answer, kids? Is Jesus greater than the father Jacob? Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Yes, amen. Not only is Jesus greater than Jacob, this is the God of Jacob in human flesh. And that human flesh would be struck. And from that striking, living water would flow, fulfilling the promise to the woman at the well and everyone else who places faith in the provision of the wilderness of sin of the water of God's eternal life. So that's the precedent. Now again, the command, creation, tremble before the presence of the Lord. At the striking of Jesus Christ, the spiritual rock in the wilderness of sin, the earth obeyed. The earth obeyed the command to tremble in the presence of the, of the God of Jacob. Matthew 27, 51 records, and behold, again, this is right at Jesus' death, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top, kids, to bottom. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And what happened next? And the earth shook and the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. There is a future orientation to Psalm 114. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Jesus Christ, the greater than Jacob, revealed as a source of living water to the woman at the well, would be struck, and at his striking, the earth said, Yes, sir, yes, my Lord and Creator, and it shook when Christ the rock was struck on Calvary. A literal earthquake split the rocks apart when our Savior died. But then there was one more earthquake I want to reference. Turn over a page or so. Matthew 28. An earthquake accompanied his death, and an earthquake accompanied his resurrection. Matthew 28, 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, notice verse 2, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has... Amen. You see here, the resurrection didn't open the tomb so Jesus could get out. 
The resurrection shook the earth at the command of the Lord, and the earth obeyed to reveal an empty tomb as evidence of the resurrected Christ. Isn't that incredible? In Psalm 114, we had a prophecy that this very thing would happen. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the God of Jacob. And so when he was struck, the earth shook, rocks split, tombs opened. And when he was raised from the dead, the earth shook to reveal the evidence of his glorious resurrection power. And the women looked in, nothing. He had been raised except grave clothes. The evidence of his redemptive work complete. It is finished. Hallelujah. Now, as we bring this message to a close, notice in that text I just read, there were two reactions. The earth shaking, the brilliant light, the presence of angels, the empty tomb, the stone rolling away as if by its own accord, and creation itself, the earth itself, answering the commandment of the Lord to shake when he said so. Two reactions. The guards trembled, paralyzed, absolute horror, fell down, unconscious, so to speak, as though dead. But the women who followed and loved the God of Jacob the God of the house of Jacob, who longed to see their Messiah again, and in, whom, in, in whose heart the Lord had placed faith in his power to raise the dead and had confirmed it with the resurrection of Lazarus himself, they received the greatest peace that passes understanding that you could possibly imagine. Fear not, he is risen. When the Lord brings his shaking, those are the two responses of the onlookers and the only two. You fall down as though dead before the judgment of God and barring opportunity for repentance, the rocks fall on you, so to speak, and you become an object forever of the wrath of the Lamb. Or you place your faith in the God who moved heaven and earth, prophesied and fulfilled all through Scripture in picture form, evidence in nature, in the Exodus, and fulfilled at the Gospel. And when you realize the message of the empty tomb, you say, yes. Amen. He is risen. He is risen, and you guys say? Let's do it louder. He is risen. Amen. I pray that truly in your heart, that is the answer to the evidence of God shaking heaven and earth. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the testimony of resurrection that we see all through the pages of your scripture. We thank you for the mighty message of creation summoned as witness along with your people and the record of the ancient texts, which proved to us once and again that you are the God who has designed and ordered and laid the foundations of New Jerusalem upon all of the glorious work that you began in the Father's heart uh, before time began and the agreement of the Trinity even before, Lord Jesus, eternally before there was a material realm. We thank you for this. We thank you that in your perfect time, you executed every element of this to accomplish your glorious work. And we thank you that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ himself was struck for us and raised from the dead. And the earth trembled at this awesome reality. The God of the house of Jacob had now died for the house of Jacob. Thus, the house of Jacob would live forever. Father, I pray as this word is spoken, that it would fall upon the ears of those who are convicted of their sin and repent and believe if they are not the house of Jacob today. If there are any who hear this and do not resonate with the glorious, peaceful truth and reality of your victory over the grave, I pray that they would confess their sins, turn and repent and place their hope in Jesus Christ, before whom the mountains tremble 
and before whom the grave surrenders, before whom the stone of the tomb is rolled away, and before whom all nations must bow. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. For the rest of us, Lord, we place faith in this Jesus Christ and owe to him alone our hope for salvation. May we be equipped and encouraged by these words, be faithful in proclaiming them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.